Hi, I'm Gary. This is episode 62 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at Tesla. They're now one of the biggest automotive manufacturers in the world and the leading EV maker. But in getting to that point, what did they do right and what did they do wrong? Before we start, I wanted to remind you of the Patreon account that's been set up for the show. Follow the link to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash evmusings, and please sign up for one of the different tiers. You'll be helping to support the show, and I'll be eternally grateful to you. If you sign up to the VIP tier and you're attending the fully charged show EV drive-in movie event in Farnborough at the end of this month, I'll be happy to chat with you there and maybe do a little interview for the podcast so you can be part of the show. I'd like to give a big shout out to my first Patreon subscriber, Marcel Ward. He was an early follower of the channel and one of the first to back the idea of a Patreon when it was announced. Thank you for signing up, Marcel. Very much appreciated. Our main topic of discussion today is Tesla. Love them or hate them, and there are many on both sides of that equation, they've come from virtually nowhere only a few short years ago to dominating the EV world and becoming one of the largest automotive manufacturers on the planet, at least by market capitalisation. How did a relatively unknown company with very little tech knowledge rise to such an exalted position? Today, we're looking at what they did right to get there and what they did wrong. I don't think anyone will contest the fact that Elon Musk and Tesla have done more to advance the cause of electric vehicles and renewable energy than just about any other entity on the planet. But having, quote, a dream about what the future should be like is rarely enough. You need to make good decisions about lots of things. In the case of Tesla, a lot of the things they've done have turned out well. There have been some missteps, though, so let's get started. The one key unique selling point for Tesla is, and always has been, the supercharger network. Musk realised very early on that people wouldn't buy an electric car unless they could guarantee that they'd be able to charge it while they were out. As Tesla is a US-based company, they looked at the sort of travel that US-based EV owners would want to do and realised that the road trip is something that would be on many drivers' minds. So the number one thing they did right is they put in place a series of high-powered charging stations along major US routes. Not only that, but they installed multiple chargers in each location, ensuring wait times would be almost non-existent if you turned up and someone was on the charger. Way back when it was just the Model X and Model S, chances of finding an occupied supercharger were slim. With the advent of the Model 3, there have been reports, especially on a Friday afternoon and evening in California, of queues at the superchargers there. But, just as with heavily used petrol stations, the queue is rarely longer than a few minutes as people finish their charging and move off. There's a famous video from Bjorn Nyland showing a time-lapse at the Nebenes supercharger in Norway, now the largest on the planet, as Tesla owners charge and move on, keeping the chargers pretty much fully occupied at peak times. To add to this, Tesla took a decision, the number two thing which they did, which was right and which was ridiculed at the time by detractors, but has proved to be the correct one in hindsight, of giving early Model S and Model X owners free use of the supercharging network for life. Once the Model 3 arrived, alongside the anticipated mass adoption of EVs, they decided to add a cost for charging a Model 3. Then they made payment mandatory for newer versions of the Model S and Model X. This was used as a marketing ploy when looking at the relatively high cost of the cars in the first place. Sure, the car's expensive, but you'll never have to pay to charge it. A car which you never had to pay for fuel? In the world of $3 per gallon gas or £5.50 per gallon petrol? That was revolutionary and very enticing. Alongside multi-unit, fast, free charging, the third thing Tesla did right was they simplified the charging process itself. 
They didn't introduce anything like an RFID card or a FOB or any other identification method. They built it right into the CAN bus of the car. When you plug a supercharger into a Tesla, it automatically recognises the car, performs a handshake and starts charging. This means you can literally go from stopping the vehicle at a charger to taking on electricity in fewer than 20 seconds. When the Model 3 came along, they didn't change anything in the process. All payment is taken care of automatically by the same CAN bus interface, which connects the vehicle to a specific Tesla account and charges that. If you've ever pulled up to, say, a Polar Network charger and had to work out whether you're charging with Polar Plus, Polar Instant or Contactless, then waited while it sorts out and validates all that, as well as performing a handshake that might not work, I'm looking at you, Jaguar owners with CCS, you'll understand why this is such a good thing. The other thing Musk and the engineers at Tesla realised is that nobody wants to spend a lot of money on an electric car and end up with a battery will take you 120 or 130 miles. That's why Tesla's fourth good thing is range. All Teslas have nice large batteries. 60 kilowatt hour was a minimum, with anything up to 100 kilowatt hours now being the norm. The EPA range for the original 60 kilowatt hour battery pack model was 208 miles, and the original 85 kilowatt hour battery was 265 miles, and this removed range anxiety from the equation for lots of owners. As a Tesla is basically a computerised battery on four wheels, it made sense that managing this computer was something that could be done on the phone. So Tesla's fifth good decision was they brought out one of the first, and still the best, apps for managing an electric vehicle. It allows you to control multiple items on the car, the lights, door lock, horns, climate control, as well as checking the status of the battery. And despite the fact that this was designed several years ago, there still isn't another EV with such a full-featured app on the market. With later models of the car, you can also use the phone to summon your vehicle to automatically drive to your location. The sixth good decision that Tesla made, and this could have been a decision that was foisted on it by regulation rather than by choice, was to only allow purchasing of the cars online. Tesla has no dealerships anywhere. They have Tesla showrooms where you can go and physically sit in the cars and do test drives, but nobody in that showroom can sell you the car. No deals can be made, no discounts offered, nothing. You have to go online and do everything there. This means the price can be standardised, options can be minimised and the whole purchase process is quick and simple. They even sort out whether you want to purchase it outright or via PCP. All online. Another key unique selling point for Tesla can there be more than one unique selling point, is the over-the-air updates. As I just said, a Tesla is basically a computerised battery on wheels. What this means is that it's all controlled by software. And one of the beauties of software, as companies like Apple have shown, is that it can be improved and upgraded. Whilst other software companies such as Microsoft have previously opted to charge for their latest versions of software, Tesla simply send the new update to you over the air. And this is the seventh good decision Tesla made. The reason this is good is that over-the-air updates will upgrade the functionality of your car for free. Examples of this include improvements to the autopilot functionality, range upgrades, and even games that can be played while you charge your car. No other vehicle manufacturer makes a vehicle that will be better six months after you bought it than Tesla. As the recent Tesla Battery Day 
announcements have shown, Tesla is looking seriously at battery tech development. And over the years, they've made some serious investments in supporting and building their battery manufacturing capability. They now have several gigafactories producing batteries all over the world, and they've also bought into companies that provide battery tech that they can leverage. This was illustrated in the announcement that Tesla had developed a large battery cell with a new design that cools even quicker and has no tabs. This will increase capacity and range while also making it easier to cool the whole battery down. The whole investment in better battery tech, the so-called vertical integration, is the eighth good decision Tesla have made. So we've talked about what Tesla have done right, but, and there are obviously more things than what we've talked about, but there have been one or two missteps along the way that we probably need to discuss. The first one is the Mark I Roadster. It's a great little car, don't get me wrong. Deed Fielding, who recently competed in the world record-breaking John O'Groats to Land's End Tesla trip, owns one of them. I've spoken to him, he loves it. But as Tesla's first car, it was more of a test bed than anything else. It proved that the principle of an electric car could work, but it also proved that taking an existing vehicle, because the Mark I Roadster is based on a Lotus Elise chassis, and retrofitting the tech and the components just wasn't going to work. This put them on the road to producing the original Model S, which really got them going. With the sort of blue sky thinking Elon Musk is known for, it seemed obvious in hindsight that starting from scratch for something like this was the correct thing to do. Hands up all those who've taken delivery of a Cybertruck. Hmm? Hmm? Can you hear the tumbleweed? If you listen to this when it was recorded, October 2020, the answer will be zero. Because despite thousands and thousands of pre-orders and some excellent looking prototypes, not a single Cybertruck has rolled off the production line yet. And this is one of many examples of Tesla doing something they do badly so well. Making promises about what's coming and not delivering in a timely fashion. The Model 3 was another prime example. It was prototyped and announced, people put their deposits down... Then they had to wait years and years while deadlines were passed and delays announced before they finally got their car. Sure, the end result was everything was hyped up to be, and sometimes more, but this sort of bad timeline management is something Tesla are particularly good stroke bad at, depending on your perspective. While we're on the Model 3, let's have a quick look at an issue that seems to have come out of that and the latest model, the Model Y. Build quality. Obviously, Tesla has ramped up from the Model S and the Model X, which were top-of-the-range versions in a relatively narrow couple of market segments. They were able to build these almost to order and to take their time doing it. But the release of the mass-market Model 3 has moved the goalposts when it comes to large-scale production. Tales of poor quality control and vehicles being rushed through to meet demand seem to be confirmed when the original editions of the Model 3 were delivered. There are YouTube videos all over the internet showing panel gaps on new cars and little faults being highlighted at delivery. There was even a report of a glass roof on a Model Y decoupling from the car on its way home from the delivery. I personally attended a Tesla delivery inspection for a friend of the podcast Gary Wales when he took delivery of his Model 3. It was in such a bad state that Tesla themselves elected not to release the car to him on the delivery date and instead loaned him a Model X for a week until his Model 3 was reviewed. Even then, it was released with several items on a waitlist to be fixed. Tesla knew in advance how popular Model 3 was going to be due to the number of pre-orders. Why did they insist on rushing these through with such quality issues? It has damaged the brand a little. And the last thing I want to say about what Tesla did wrong stems from the previous item on volume production. 
Now that the number of Teslas on the road matches all other EVs ever produced, there's a bit of a problem when it comes to fixing issues. The aforementioned Gary Wells has said that he's still waiting for things to be fixed on his Model 3 almost a year after he took delivery of it. The customer service aspect is an area where Tesla have dropped the ball a little. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that these issues are related purely to Tesla. Other car manufacturers also have quality problems and customer service issues. But the whole idea of Tesla was that they would do cars differently. This means breaking the model. They did it with things like no dealers for cars and no budget for advertising. But that's had a knock-on effect in trying to get cars serviced or fixed. The final thing I want to talk about falls squarely into that grey area of being both good and bad. Unfortunately, it's something that's outside the control of Tesla as an organisation, but in a way, it was a logical outcome of it. I'm talking about the fanboys. Tesla fanboys are excellent advocates for the brand because they evangelise for Tesla at every opportunity. It's well known that Tesla don't advertise anywhere to sell their cars. They built a world-beating product which is still three to five years ahead of anything else on the planet, and they let owners advertise it for them, for free. I've mentioned Gary Wales several times already on this podcast. He was persuaded to get a Tesla rather than i3 or similar because he spent an hour with a new Model 3 owner at an Oxford EVs group meet last year, and the owner evangelised about the car at length. He also gave Gary's referral code, and they both benefited from free supercharging miles when the sale was made. Find me another car manufacturer that can do that. But the flip side of the fanboyism is quite ugly. Tesla fanboys are well known for piling on anyone who says anything negative about Tesla. They can be vitriolic and nasty. In some places, they act in an almost cult-like manner. It's not helpful for some EV owner who tweets, I ran out of charge because my e-golf couldn't charge at Ecotricity last night because it didn't have a working CCS plug. To then have a chorus of Tesla owners reply with, Should have bought a Tesla. Supercharging for the win. Wouldn't have that problem with a Tesla, etc. I said it before on the show, anyone who can afford a Tesla and has not bought one has done it for a specific reason and is willing to bear the consequences of that. Anyone who has an EV and it's not a Tesla is likely in that situation because they can't afford one or they don't want one. Telling someone who can't afford it that they should have bought a Tesla is mean-spirited and it reflects poorly on the individual post in the comment. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm all for people supporting their favourite EVs. It's healthy. I mean, you've only got to look at Craig Tong from the Renault Zoe Owners Club to see how he, he's absolutely mad for his Zoe. And I've yet to find a Leaf owner who doesn't adore their car. But to get to a level of toxic cult status about a car is possibly a step too far. In summary, Tesla's just about the biggest car manufacturer in the world, at least in terms of capitalisation. It's done many, many things right to get there, not least of which is producing fantastic products that people want to buy. But let's not forget that there are clouds to this silver lining. Can Tesla improve even more? It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. The September figures for car sales in the UK have been released, and the figures are very, very encouraging for EVs. Overall, the sales of all vehicles are down by 33% from the same period last year, but for vehicles with a plug, the sales are up by 166% year-on-year. Pure battery electric vehicles are up 183% year-on-year for a market share of 6.7%. Overall, 1 in 10 vehicles sold in the UK in September 
had a plug. This is a huge increase on the same time last year, and it's indicative of the increasing range of cars now available, with companies like Honda, MG, Vauxhall, Polestar, Mini and Peugeot releasing electric models. And this is very, very encouraging news. When pure diesel is down 56% year-to-date, petrol down 40% year-to-date, and anything with a plug increasing in sales, you know you're going in the right direction. Now all we need to do is wean the country off the mild hybrids, and we've really got ourselves a ball game. We'll be doing more on hybrids in a couple of weeks' time. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, please use the EV Musings Twitter account, Musings EV, or I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast and the newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called So You've Gone Electric. It's available on Amazon worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. At the moment, it's free on Kindle Unlimited, or if you're in the Kindle Lending Library, please check it out. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. Thanks, as always, to my co-founder, Simon. You know, he's a big fan of the Hot Wheels brand of toy cars. Got a room full of them. But he knows the holy grail of Hot Wheels is the DeLorean from Back to Future with the working time machine. Of course, there were problems with this. It was prototyped and announced. People put their deposits down. Then they had to wait years and years while deadlines were passed and delays announced before they finally got their car. Thanks for listening. Bye.